are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to be studying between verses 13 and 17. And I entitled this Bible study, God's Part, Our Part. Now, over the centuries, Christians and Christian theologians have debated this question of what is God's part in our salvation versus what is our part? What's his responsibility or what's his action? What's our action? And uh, as these things tend to go, of course, there's been deep division over how we read the scripture and come up with an answer to that question. And the division that has grown into uh, the church and into teaching from the church has has polarized around two theologies, each of which is named after a 16th century theologian who kind of promoted the idea. The first one you've heard many times, Calvinism, uh, named after John Calvin, a French theologian. And Calvin's view of the whole salvation transaction, theologians call that soteriology. How does one get saved? He holds that man, mankind, humanity, is totally depraved and completely void of any capacity to make a choice to believe in God or not. Can't do that on his own. Salvation is 100% God's election of those for whom he chose to die, which means that his atonement, in the view of the pure Calvinist, is a uh, a limited atonement. It's only for those that he ultimately elected to be saved. And man has nothing to do with, with his own salvation. This is kind of the extreme Calvinist view, just a summary, top-level view. On the other extreme is what is known as Arminianism. And Arminianism is named after uh, Jacobus Arminius, who is a Dutch theologian. And Dutch and the French, they never agree on anything. But um, under this view, human depravity is certainly real, but it wasn't total. And that man does possess enough Uh, of a sense to be able to exercise his or her own free will to accept Jesus Christ. And because God knows all things, God knows who's going to accept him, and therefore he elects those ones that he knows are going to ultimately receive him. The Arminius view would believe that uh, there's universal atonement. The, the, The death of Christ on the cross was an atonement for all of humanity, but only those who decide to accept his grace actually receive it. And they also believe that this universal grace of God can be resisted. You, 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 could, you could decide, no, I do not want to be saved by Jesus Christ. I don't believe in Jesus or whatever. And they even go so far as to say that even after you've been saved, you can decide to disengage from your salvation of the Lord. Now, again, these are extreme expressions of these views because there's everything in between those two extremes. Now, the only reason I bring this up to you and and, and summarize those two views is because I believe there's danger in being dogmatic about this view or that view. People tend to think that they have come into an ice cream shop and there's only chocolate and vanilla. And so somehow they got to argue between the merits of those two. What we choose to do here at Calvary Chapel is to let the scripture speak for itself. What you're going to hear this morning, I'm going to use this passage to, as a launching pad to take you to other places in scripture to, to show you what, in fact, the Bible says about what is God's part in the salvation transaction and what is our part. 
And we're going to try and stay away from the dogmatic view of we're either five-point Calvinists or Arminius or anything like a Reformed church, anything like that. Let's just look at what God says in the scripture. This has been, I, I credit Pastor Chuck, frankly, who is the, you know, the progenitor of the Calvary Chapel movement, to, to be so, um, to have such a high view of scripture as to say, with all due respect to theologians uh, and particularly Calvin and Arminius, um, let God do the talking. Let God express to us what, what he promises to do and what he asks us to do. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And so if you would stand with me, we're going to read these verses. And as I say, these, these verses here, these five verses, they aren't an extensive treatise on this particular point, but they do introduce us to go to these different places in scripture so that we might understand this better. Because frankly, um, if you grab onto an extreme view of soteriology, the, the devil can use that exquisitely to talk you right out of your faith, okay? So uh, let's read the verses, and then we will, uh, we will venture on this journey. And I appreciate all of you here to, uh, to, to go through this with me, because this, this is the nuts and bolt, uh, bolts of our faith. Here's what it says. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the tradition which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work, word and work. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we are so grateful to be standing here this morning as redeemed people, Lord. It has been through the power of your word worked into our hearts by your spirit that we know you. I pray, Lord, we would know you even more this morning because we are here to hear these words, which I pray your spirit would speak through me to your precious people, Lord. Keep me out of your way, Lord. Have your way with us all today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, um, I, I warn against being um, rigidly latched to dogma. You know, the Arminius Calvinist uh, points of view is, is really what distinguished or what set, kind of defined the Methodists versus the Presbyterians. The Methodists more on the Arminian side of the equation, the Presbyterian church more on the Calvinist or Reformed side of things. And, uh, you know, division in the body of Christ, I think, sometimes confounds the unsaved. I, I talked with some um, missionaries over in and pastors over in India, and uh, they were asked one time by a group of Calvary pastors, uh, "What is the one thing you want us to know before we go before your people, you know, to to preach the gospel?" He said, "Well, uh, one of the things you're going to have to overcome." is that every time they have another Christian group come in here, they spend part of their time warning them about other Christian groups. You know, well, they teach this. Don't listen to that. We teach the right thing, etc. And this is why I think it was wise in Chuck Smith's uh, original approach to the scriptures and what he shared with many of us who have followed after him. 
Let the Bible do the talking, really. And so the first thing I want you to know when it comes to salvation, and it's expressed there in the first portion of verse 13, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved beloved by the Lord. The thing we have to keep in mind is the motivation for our salvation. The reason why we're saved at all is because God loves us. God loves you. I want to keep this particular discussion very personal to you. We've all heard, read, and spoken of John 3.16. But when you put your name into it, for God so loved David that he gave his only begotten son, that if I would only believe, I would not perish and have everlasting life. This is very personal to you, your salvation, very personal. And the thing that's so astounding about it is that unlike the way we often love people, where we love those people that we find lovable, we we love those people that are loving us, we tend to love people about as much as they're loving us, that was not God's heart at all. God loved us when we were the worst, rottenest sinners we could be. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is unconditional love in the extreme. One of the things in my past that helps me to understand that kind of love, this is going to sound weird, so bear with me. When I was five years old, I got a, a, a teddy bear for Christmas. And I, I loved that bear. I loved that bear. I took it everywhere. I carried that bear around so much it became threadbare because I was just constantly holding on to it, bringing it with me, sleeping with it. And I was, you know, it was starting to get very shabby. And, you know, my parents would say, why don't you throw that thing away? We'll just get you another bear or whatever you want. But I, no, I would hunt down my mother, my grandmother, my sisters, my brother's girlfriend. Please, would you sew up his toe? Would you sew up his side? And, you know, 63 years later, I have that. That was him yesterday. We were having coffee. My, my, my wife still wonders, why does he have to sleep between us in the bed? But that, that's him. 63 years later, uh, you can't see it, but he's got stuffing coming out of his foot. Um, but here's the thing. It's not for anything that he does for me. He has never gotten me coffee. He has never helped me clean my room. He, he, just, he just exists. But my heart for that bear, really, I'm not this crazy. I mean, we just happen to have it, you know. Okay. But the thing is, there is an attachment there. There's an allegiance there. There is a... There, there was a, um, there was just a sense that I am going to love that creature, um, in spite of the fact that it's falling apart. It's decaying before my eyes. We keep it now in a plastic bag. It kind of looks like a body bag, because um, <laughs> because it's just falling apart. But this is the heart of God for you and me. We're falling apart. We got stuff falling out of us all the time. Some some of it's very vile, and yet God holds on to us. He preserves us. He's got a plan for us. And what we read there in verse uh, 13b 
is that because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. He chose us from the beginning. Now, this is the part that so many people have a difficult time wrapping their brain around. God chose me before I was even me. That tends to make us think we have no choice in the matter. And we're going to hold that to the side for a moment. But you have to understand that no matter what anyone tells you, what, any, what anyone wants to uh, drive you to, all I ask you to do is to look at what it says there. God from the beginning, from the beginning of what? The beginning of everything chose you for salvation. Paul the Apostle would repeat or would emphasize that also in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, where in that majestic opening chapter of Ephesians where he's telling you your position in Christ, which has got to be among the most encouraging verses in all the Bible. He says, just as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. See, there he's even more explicit. Before even the world was, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. The good pleasure of his will. It delighted him that he chose you to be his. It delighted him. And this happened before you even were formed. You were even a twinkle in your father's eye. First Peter 1, 2. Peter calls us the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. This, this idea, this doctrine is known as election. It is, it is a divine selection, choice of you. Just like this was modeled, this was, was foreshadowed in the way in which God elected the Jewish people to be his chosen people. He elected a single man to be the progenitor of that nation. Could have chose from, I don't know, there, there was certainly millions, if not a billion people on the earth at that time. But he chose one man because he just did. It was nothing that stood out about Abraham at the time that would cause God to choose him. And likewise, he has done the same with us. And here's the part that's really stunning. And a lot of us, especially the self-righteous among us, nobody in here, of course, but other people like that. They don't want to believe that they couldn't have done it on their own. See, we're very, we're very prideful, right? We, 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 we can do this, right? Well, guess what? Salvation could never happen if it was up to us. Our salvation could not have been accomplished any other way then, but that God elected to save us. How do I know that? Well, if you turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 3, between verses 9 and 12, now this is, this is Paul the Apostle writing, and he's writing in a way that is helping both sides of the equation. Jewish people who have been uh, brought up through the centuries believing that because they are the possessors of the law and do their best to keep it, that they are, they are saved for, for all, all time. And then the Gentile people who are newly coming into this idea of salvation. And so he's addressing both when he says, but what then? What then? Are we better than they? In other words, are we better than the Jewish people? Are the Jewish people better than us? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. On this, on this particular point, the Calvinists are onto something. 
and that there is total depravity of human, human beings, human nature. In that, in that depravity is the, is the snake bite of Satan. The snake bite of Satan is, is putting into us exactly what was in his heart when he fell, which is, I will be as the most high. I will ascend above to the heavens. And this same predilection of self, of promoting self, of exalting self, is the same thing he gave us. It was part of the lie that he gave to Eve and then Adam is that, look, if you, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because if you do, then you'll be like him. You'll know what he knows. You'll know the difference between sin and not sin. And, and so this, this, this pre-wiring that we have would make it uh, impossible for us to ever on our own say, you know something? I am going to surrender myself. I am going to sublimate all of my will, desire, plans, and I'm going to put them underneath God. Romans chapter 1 describes very perfectly what we do when we know God and yet refuse to acknowledge him as God. What do we do? We turn to worshiping the creation which has as its apex us, right? So, so what does scripture tell us? Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, towards men appeared, which is why we did that song this morning, kindness, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit. Far from giving us what we deserved, he gave us what we didn't deserve. We deserved death. He took him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. This is the only way it could have happened. We could never have done it on our own. Now, how does he affect it? Well, we see back in our text, uh, in the last portion of verse 13 and verse 14, He says, we are chosen for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's telling us is the way in which he changes the equation, an equation that starts out as me, 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 worship me, exalt me. He changes that through the power of his spirit working the word of God. That's why we, we count Sunday morning as really being kind of filling the tank for the week in the sense of understanding that God has revealed to us what we need to know about him and it's right here. It's why we spend virtually our entire attention span in this church to exposing the word of God to you. It's why we precede every Bible study with a prayer. What do we do? We invoke the spirit. We we. we Ask the Spirit to please come minister this to our hearts. For those of us who are saved, it edifies and builds us up. For those of you who are not saved, this is the only way you will ever become saved, okay? Scripture tells us clearly in Romans 10, for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's exactly what's being told to us in our text. Sanctification, which means setting us apart by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. The truth about what? what? What truth? Right here. This is the truth. And so God uses that with, as a tool for his spirit to change hearts. 
In, in the famous verses in John chapter 16, where Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, I need to go away, but I'm going to send you another comforter, the Holy Spirit of God. And there he says, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And he goes on to explain what that means of sin. You know, Jesus was, was crucified falsely, unjustly, as a, as a ne'er-do-well. But his resurrection proved that he was indeed righteous, the righteous one, the Messiah, the Son of God. Sin is unbelieving Christ, is not believing in Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts us of that. The word of God exposes who this man who is God is and sin is the rejection of that testimony. Righteousness is who he is and judgment is the consequence for failing to receive who he is. And so the Holy Spirit does that to us, does that in us as the means by which God draws us to him. Now, the interesting and cool thing about the way the Lord does this is that it comes at an appointed time, in, in an appointed place, in an appointed way. Every one of you here who is saved, you have your own God story, don't you? When it happened, what you were like before it happened, what ultimately moved you to get to your knees and to ask Lord, the Lord into your life. How old were you when that happened? Where were you when it happened? These are things that the scripture clearly notes is very purposeful in, in, in the life of each individual believer. One of the best stories that you find in the Bible is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul spent his adult life learning the law and, and, and persecuting the church. He, he was the point of the spear for the Jewish uh, leadership to, to eradicate this, what they thought was a heretical sect amongst them. And, and you'd say, well, gosh, why would the Lord let him go through all of that horror? Why couldn't he have just saved him at the foot of the cross? No. Nobody had a better understanding of the ravages of sin than Paul the Apostle. It's not to say that God glorified in his sin, that God encouraged his sin, but God allowed his life to carry on in that vicious way so that he, better than anyone else, could be God's vessel to convey the doctrine of grace. Nobody knew grace better than Paul. How many times do you think the devil brought into his mind that he held the coats of the men who executed the first martyr of the church, Stephen? Throwing rocks at him, beating his brains out. Paul's holding their coats, cheering him on. That movie probably played a few times in his head after he was saved. But the Lord, he knew the Lord forgave him of that. That's why he called himself the least of the apostles. The humility that that experience bred in Paul was part of the strength that he had as a vessel to convey the truth of scripture. Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Cornelius gets an opportunity as he's sitting there in his home and he has been uh, drawn already to the, the, the worshiping of the God of the Jews. He already understands Ah, that God's different. That God's different than the one we worship or the ones we worship. And then the Lord tells him, send your men to, to, to uh, Jaffa. There's a man there that they need to bring back to you. At the same time, God is speaking to Peter, 
who's on the rooftop of his friend's house. And the Lord first gives him an expose of how the, the veil has been rent and that there's no longer this, this, this slavish, ritualistic approach to God. The way has been opened. And, there, and he demonstrates that in a very a powerful way to Peter by saying, look, here's all of these creatures, many of whom under the Jewish law were considered unclean. And, and, and the Lord instructs him to rise, Peter, and eat. He says, no, 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 I would never do that. He said, no, what the Lord declares clean you shall not declare unclean. This opens the thinking now, as right as he's getting that message, these men from Cornelius' house, they come, they, they, they get Peter, they bring him there, and the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his whole house. It's an amazing thing. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, Ethiopian eunuch is making his way through the Judean desert. In the meantime, Philip is, is in a completely different place. The Lord moves in his heart, says, I want you to go down there. I want you to go down into the, the desert, and I want you to find this man. Here's, here's Philip. He's probably thinking, well, I'm really important right where I am. I'm preaching the gospel to all these people, and this is, you know, this is where I belong. No, 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 go down there. He goes down. He finds the Ethiopian eunuch. Guess what? He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. Guess where he is in the scroll of Isaiah? Isaiah 53, verse 7. And he's saying, uh, who is this guy? Is, is the prophet writing about himself or somebody else? Peter says, well, let me tell you. And this man gets saved. And these are remarkable ways in which God approaches each one of us. You have your God story. I have mine. This is why you're called to be a witness. You're not called to be a theologian, by the way. I've, I've had discussions with several of you before. And you say, oh, I wish... My brother, my sister, my, my kid, my parent would get saved. I say, have you shared the gospel with them? Oh, I couldn't do that. I, don't, I just don't know enough of the word. So when no one's asking you to be a theologian, you know how you got saved, right? Well, yeah. You know what it took to get saved, right? Yeah. Well, that's all, they're ask, that's all the Lord asks you to do is be a witness, not judge and jury, just a witness. Tell them what happened to you and tell them how they could get to that same place. And so this is the beauty of, um, of how God, what God's part is. Uh, God's part starts with his love for us. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. He elected you. He decided that you would be his before the foundations of the world. He called you through his spirit, working through the gospel. And the righteousness of Christ in, in, in the presence of us is, is, is what shows us our own unrighteousness. When we, when we come to the knowledge of who Jesus is, we understand who we are. And when we understand that, we understand that there's a judgment coming for that unrighteousness unless we receive the grace that God has bestowed upon us. This is God's part. Now, if it all ended here, you could say, I think Calvin has got it mostly right. <laughs> but the scripture does indeed speak directly and clearly on the point that you and me have a responsibility to choose God. In fact, the scripture clearly tells us that we do indeed have a choice. A choice means it could be door A or door B. Door A, ticker tape parade, welcome into the joy of the Lord. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Door B, heat, fire, 
uh, a worm that never dies, and I can't wait to, to find out truly what that means. <laughs> so here's the thing. Atonement is indeed universal, just as the Arminius would have you believe, even if all does not respond to it. Th- this is what we read in, uh, in um, 1 John 2.2. 2. We read, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation simply means paid in full. It is the payment. It is, it is the satisfaction of the debt. He himself is the satisfaction for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. So clearly, Jesus Christ's atoning death on the cross was for everybody. Every single human being who has ever come upon the earth has that available to them, okay? But we have to decide to receive that grace. We, we, we can either choose to receive the grace that God has given us, or we can reject it. And, and here is where uh, scripture is very clear on this. John chapter 12, verses 46 through 48. This is what we read. And you're going to say, well, how does, how does that fit with what we just saw about election in Ephesians chapter 1 in our text in verses 13? And 14? How does this all fit? We're going to get to it. But here's what John 12, 46 through 8 says. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, so see, there's clearly that choice. I do not judge him, for I did not come to to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last days. Now understand, when he says that if they don't believe, I will not judge him, it's because he doesn't need to. Go and read John 3.18. What John 3.18 tells us that those who don't believe, they're condemned already. Jesus didn't come to condemn the already condemned. He came to save condemned people. If you decide to reject what Jesus Christ has given to us as his grace and mercy, you stay right where you are, which is a condemned man or woman. It is a choice you make to either come out of condemnation or not. And it is clearly a choice. Again, Romans 10, 13. For whoever, 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 calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever. It doesn't say whoever who is among the elect for whom the atonement applied specifically, not those other bums, but the ones that he actually applied it to, they will be saved. No, it says whomever. Here's the one that just really, uh, you know, I've said this many times, but when the Lord repeats something, especially in the same verse, it's because he knows how thick we are. He repeats for emphasis. He doesn't repeat to make it more true because if it's true, it's true. But watch this. This is one of the last verses. In fact, I got to see how close to the very end of it is it. This is found in Revelation chapter 22. Okay, so it's verse 17. And there's only 21 verses in Revelation 22. So it's among the very last verses in the Bible. Okay, this is what it says. And the spirit and the bride, bride would be the church, spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. (laughs) Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. This is why I say, if, If you get hung up on the extremes of doctrine, and particularly if you're in the reformed mindset, sometimes people will ask the question, well, how do I know if I'm elect? 
How do I know if God elected me? What if he didn't? All I can think of is if I came into a room with a bowl of really delicious ice cream, Witz ice cream, Witz in Hillsborough, they actually, it's not ice cream, it's custard, there's a difference. There's more egg in custard. It's delicious, creamy, cool, refreshing, sweet. I come in with that bowl and I say, here's a bowl of Witz custard. And you say, how do I know if I'll like it? <laughs> Try it. <laughs> Try it. How do I know if I'll like it? How do I know if I'm elect? Well, spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, drink freely. Eat that custard freely. Well, we don't need to be concerned with what God knows. What we need to be concerned with is what God wants us to know. What does God want us to know? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You want to know if you're elected? Come to Christ. And guess what? You've just confirmed what God knew and did since before the foundations of the world. Now you'd say, well, how do we reconcile these two? I don't know. That's above my pay grade. I don't need to reconcile those two any more than I need to reconcile a, 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 a single God expressed in three persons, the Trinity. I can't explain that. You know, people love to try and come up with analogies. And I guess water could be one. Water can be a a solid, a liquid, and a gas. Okay, that's clever. But at the end of the day, I don't need an analogy. God said it. It's true. And equally, God has established in us the knowledge that he chose you. You say, well, gosh, I wish he didn't tell me that. It confuses me and it hurts my head. No, I want to know that he chose me because I'm pretty convinced of what the word says, that I would never choose him on my own. I would never have been drawn to him on my own. It took me 33 years to understand that I cannot be the repository of my truth. I cannot be the sole well of my strength. I have nothing. I come with nothing. I come with an illusion of something that is really nothing. And it took me a lot longer than a lot of people to figure that out. And so I am grateful that God chose me because he loves me. Not because he had to make a quota, but because he loves me. And he did something for me that I would never have done on my own. And it's the best thing, of course, that has ever happened to me in my life. Now, some of the other things that he tells us we must do, and this is not a work unto salvation, but it is evidence of salvation. Verse 15 of our text. Um, ooh, I better get to the other one because verse 15 here is not great. <laughs> um, verse 15 of our text. <laughs> Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. What he's telling us there is that we need to guard the truth. We need to stand in the truth. And when I say guard the truth, I don't, I don't necessarily mean we have to go out and, and uh, shout down anybody who speaks against the Lord, although that could be part of it. But we need to stand fast in the truth, just in the battle that goes on within us, right? We, we are constantly battling against not flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. These things 
these things can influence you. They can, they can, you know, you, we all suffer at times from, from despair, from discouragement, from doubt about different things, particularly when a, a, a life trauma happens, a loss of a loved one, a, a very troubling diagnosis or whatever. Uh, we can start to be shaky. We can start to have fears. The enemy loves to prey on our fears. This is why Paul the Apostle was very clear to say that we are not given a spirit of fear. We're given a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Our mind becomes less sound when we are ill-informed and fearful. And so guarding the truth is simply saying, continue to make the bulwark of your life the word of God. Continue to surround yourself with an understanding of the word with people like yourselves who encourage you in the word, people that you can trust who teach you the word, because that is what we have to sustain ourselves in a world that is, that is uh, really attempting to draw us off. And in the days in which we live now, you got a lot of headwind blowing in your face. You've got headwinds the likes of which uh, come from the culture, from the entertainment world, from the political world, from, from just your peer group. These, these are things that, that uh, Paul the Apostle warned about in terms of savage wolves coming among the flock. These would be false teachers who are trying to draw us off now because they themselves have been affected by the world. And you'd say, well, is guarding the truth something we need to do to get saved? Not necessarily. It is something we do in our salvation to be useful to God. But let me tell you this too. I've had this discussion with many people many times um, who, who, would, who would put forth the idea that you can lose your salvation. That if you should decide at some point after you pray the prayer of salvation, that you could lose your salvation. This is not scriptural. This is not scriptural. Again, I'll just let the, I'll, I'll let the Lord speak. John chapter 10, verses 27 and 8. My sheep. Okay, now let's stop right there. My sheep. These are people who are truly saved. I could take you to several places in Scripture. We won't do it now in the interest of time. But several places in Scripture that speak about a false profession of faith. Notable among them, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 or thereabouts. Where the Lord says, hey, in that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. And I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. See, in their minds, they thought they had made a profession of faith. They prayed the prayer like Aladdin rubs the lamp and magical things are supposed to happen but the lord is looking for a change of heart so when he says my sheep he's talking about a truly converted soul my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me and i give them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall get this now anyone snatch them out of my hand anyone would include you just like all means all, well, anyone means anyone, which would include you. You understand if, if everything I've already covered with you about election is true, that before the foundations of the world, God chose you, and then you can undo that, all of a sudden, telex goes into heaven, uh, God, it's been undone, sorry. That which you chose before the foundations of the world, it's off. God says, boy, I hate when that happens. Not, not even close. If God has elected you since before the foundations of the world, do you think that he 
would not know that you might have a moment of, of shaky knees and say, well, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. No, the only person who would ever say that is somebody who was never saved in the first place. Because if you have the spirit of God living in your heart, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So any influence that comes to you in the world, any influence that, that might be pushed into your head like doubt, despair, etc., it can overcome the spirit of God. If you are overcome by those things, you're probably void of the Spirit of God. And so the reason why I say that these things that we're talking about guarding the truth and whatnot, there are people, I believe, that prayed the prayer of salvation at a point in time, didn't pray it with their whole heart. But because they identified themselves as Christian, they continued coming to church, they continued being around Christian people, and over time, they actually came to faith. The reason why I know that is because a lot of people I've baptized in my time of being a pastor have said, you know, I got baptized when I was 16 years old. But then I went through another 20 years of living like the world. And since we've been studying the word and thus and so forth, I, I start to realize now what it means to be a Christian. So I want to get baptized again. And I say, wonderful. The thing I don't say is, and this will be the first real time because now you truly are saved. So, so doing the things that are instructed here, do them because if you might be in that, that category of a person who thought you were saved because you prayed some prayer at some point in your life and then never lived with any fruit of what's coming out consistent with salvation, you don't know, but that by staying attentive to the word, the Lord can still do that work in you and you'll be saved for all time and no one will be able to snatch you from his hand. Now, the final two things, or the final thing that he tells us in verses 16 and 17 of our text is to practice the truth. That's part of our responsibility. Because in practicing the truth, we do what God has created us to do, which is to draw other people to him. He says there in verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. This is what God has created you for. You know, when you go to Ephesians chapter 2 and you read about we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any should boast. Well, then the next verse that follows is verse 10. And that verse tells us that we, we have been created by him. He, we are his workmanship, created for the specific purpose of doing the works which he has determined for you since before the foundations of the world. And so our part in salvation why it's to make the decision to receive the grace and mercy of god and don't be troubled by what god knows and what god does remember god lives outside of time he's not in the same chronology that we live in uh, time is one of the dimensions of our universe and so we think about well i heard the word i considered it i believed it i was saved that all happened in a chronological sequence god doesn't live in that sequence for god everything's right now and so to say that God selected, elected you since before the, the foundations of the world, don't trouble yourself about that. You have one responsibility, decide. And when should you decide? Is there an appointed day on the calendar? Yeah, it's called today. And guess what? It comes up every day. So today is the day of salvation for all. And there, there's just a decision on your part. You're either 
deciding that I am a sinner and in my own self nothing good dwells and there's nothing I can do to save myself. I know that the wages of sin is death. And I know that God so loved me. That was his motivation. I'm that teddy bear in the chair drinking a fake cup of coffee. He so loved me that he gave his son Jesus to die in my place, the propitiation, payment in full, that I might have everlasting life. Make it personal to yourself. Go read those verses. Make it personal to you. And if today is your day, if today is your day, I'm always hanging around. I'm out there. Uh, first I get refreshed in the office, then I go out there. I'm here. Jeff is here. Larry is here. Jack is here. Find one of us. Pray the prayer. Uh, Sue is here. Trish is here. Linda's here. Michelle is here. We will pray with you. Kim Booth is here. I know she's led many to the Lord. Vinny, are you here? Vinny Abrascato? Vinny's here. Today's the day of salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you, God, that you loved us enough. You loved us enough to choose us, Lord. You drew us to you. You gave us a heart that wanted to repent. But Lord, we did exercise the will that you gave us. We are created in your image, and so we are people with volition. We can choose yes or no, God or not God. I thank you, God, for my choice. I thank you for the choice of most in this room. I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that today would be the day that they would, they would just humble themselves and realize that in our own strength, we cannot save ourselves. There is a judgment coming. Your spirit tells us, convicts us of sin. What sin? The sin of unbelief, the sin of rejecting the only provision that you have made for our sins. The, the spirit has convicted us of the righteousness of Christ, that even that he was executed as a criminal, you raised him from the dead as Savior, Messiah, King, Son of God. And Lord, the Spirit convicts us of judgment, judgment that happens to the unbeliever. The unbeliever has already been judged, already condemned by the word of God. Because your word tells us clearly that all who would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart confess Jesus and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. They are saved. But those that don't confess that, who don't believe that, they remain where they are, which is condemned. And Lord, we would not wish condemnation on anyone, not friend or enemy or frenemy. We wish that all would come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and repent. And so Lord, have your way with us. I thank you, God, for meeting us here today. I thank you for blessing this body today and always. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen, amen. God bless you all. Have a great day.